You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let me ask you this morning, what comes to your mind when you think about learning who God is? How did you get to know what you think you know about who God is? And in particular, how is it that we get to know God himself and who he is and who he is not? so that our thoughts about him and our prayers to him are based on reality and not speculation or fantasy. How do we know the true God? Maybe you think about theology books and maybe some of you think about Latin words and technical terms. Maybe you think about classrooms or perhaps better, you think about reading, studying, meditating on the Bible, whether by yourself or with others. Maybe you think about sitting under faithful preaching with the Bible open and with a pastor doing his level best to proclaim what God has revealed in his word rather than just waxing on about the pastor's own opinions. And the reason I ask that this morning is because I think it's insightful for us to try to take ourselves back more than 3,000 years and pose that kind of question to that first generation of God's people that came out of slavery in Egypt. To say to average Joe Hebrew, what comes to your mind when you think about how you know who God is? And I think that ancient Israelite would answer why the Exodus, of course, from the first plague to the 10th plague, to the Passover, to the splitting of the Red Sea, to the roar of the waters as God brought them back on Egypt's army, to the quiet, to the silence that came afterwards. God showed us who he is, not simply by freeing us from slavery, but how he did it. How he did that through the plagues and at the Red Sea. He showed us himself. And so if we were able to ask that first generation of Israelites, who is the Lord? They would think of plagues and Passover and Red Sea. This is how God's people came to know him. And as we've seen in these chapters in Exodus, God introduced himself to his people as friend and introduced himself to the Egyptians as enemies. And one of the most foreboding statements in all of Exodus that we've seen so far is chapter 5, verse 2. Let me remind you about chapter 5, verse 2. Moses has just approached Pharaoh for the first time. And Moses says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. To which Pharaoh responds, mark this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? And says, I don't know the Lord. And knowing how the story goes, we might pause here and say to ourselves, oh, Pharaoh, you will know. You will find out who the Lord is soon enough. You will see him in act of judgment after act of judgment on you and your people, and you will know who the Lord is. And so alongside that major theme that we looked at last weekend of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, Pastor Joe turned our focus there last week 
Today, we look at this other major theme. This one's actually more ultimate in God making himself known in the Exodus. And we have seen it again and again in this phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord. After Pharaoh's comment in chapter 5, we saw it emerge in chapter 6. There God says to Moses, Exodus 6, verse 7, tell the Israelites, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then his declaration echoes again and again throughout these chapters. God does what he does so that his people will know who he is. Twice more in chapter 7, once in chapter 8, again in chapter 9, again in chapter 10, again in chapter 12, and now twice more in chapter 14 in that text that David just read. And not only will Israel know him, but Exodus 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, he says. No more will Pharaoh be able to say, who is the Lord? I do not know him. Pharaoh will know God, but not his friend. Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know him as a vanquishing foe, as we see twice in this morning's passage. Look at verse 4, chapter 14, verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue the people. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then verse 18, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So in the plagues, in the Passover, and now at the Red Sea, God is showing his people and their oppressors who he is. And the reason the Exodus goes down like it does with all its strange and peculiar details and twists and turns is that God is making himself known. The main point isn't simply free the people from slavery. God could have done that in a moment with his power. The main point is God is making himself known to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to his own people, and to the world. And not just the surrounding nations more than 3,000 years ago, but throughout history. We know him today in part because of this revelation at the Red Sea. So here we are today at the Red Sea crossing, ready to learn about God. Who is it that he reveals himself to be at this Red Sea crossing? That's our focus this morning. Who does God mean for us to know him as because of the Red Sea crossing? How does God make himself known at the Red Sea crossing. There are three distinct sections in our passage here this morning. There's the end of chapter 13, that's verses 17 to 22 of chapter 13, where we read about this pillar of cloud and fire that leads God's people as they leave Egypt. And then in chapter 14, most of that David read a few minutes ago, verses 1 to 31 is the crossing of the Red Sea. And then chapter 15, is Moses and the people's song of praise to God for his deliverance at the Red Sea. And so let's focus this morning, as best as I can tell, the four most significant, or at least the most repeated, revelations about who God is in these chapters. I think each one of these is established in chapter 14 and then 
reiterated in chapter 15. So with each of these, I'll give you a chapter 14 text and also a chapter 15 text as well. So let's get to know God at the Red Sea. Who is the Lord? Number one, he guides his people in unexpected ways. He guides his people in unexpected ways. This is chapter 13, verse 17, all the way through chapter 14, verse 9. And then we'll see the taste in chapter 15, verse 13. So at the end of chapter 12, God's people at long last exit the land of their slavery and oppression. The first half of chapter 13 then follows up on the Passover and establishes this feast of unleavened bread. And then in chapter 13, verse 17, the narrative resumes. And now it's a new section of the book. Now they're in a new location for the first time. They're out of Egypt and the people are on the move, but they're not on their own. God doesn't leave them to decide the direction and the pace and the strategy. He manifests his presence as he did at the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3. This time he does so in a pillar of fire at night, pillar like a big column, and a cloud during the day. Four times in verses 17 to 22 of chapter 13, these verses accent that God is leading the people. Look at the first two. This is verses 21 to 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them. There's a mention of leading along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God is leading them in this strange pillar, column of fire and cloud. That's unexpected enough. But what's most unexpected here about God's way of leading, his way of guiding his people, is the path that he takes them on. This is really important to see. It is not a direct route to the promised land. Verses 17 and 18. And here's the other two references to God's leading. Verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And as you hear toward the Red Sea, we anticipate what's coming here. I suspect there were old men and others in Israel who were very aware about the indirectness of this route. They were very aware of which direction was east and that the people were headed south. And this was by no means the most efficient route for getting to the promised land. This is not direct, but it's God's way. It's not the shortest route. But in God's strange economy, this is the best way for his people. Because in part, God is not yet done with Egypt. The victory isn't yet complete. And God means for it to be more complete and to lead his people around by the way of the wilderness. So confused as God's people must have been at the time, this is something they will praise him for in chapter 15, verse 13. Look at that. Verse 13 in chapter 15. You have led... There's that key word, led. In your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength and your holy abode. So as strange as it was, when they start going in the non-direct route, they will praise God for this in just a few hours. So God leads them and he guides them by the supernatural pillar 
of fire and cloud, and he doesn't take them on the shortest, most direct route, but on his appointed path, which will prove to be the best in the end. But not only this, God then guides them at the beginning of chapter 14, verses 1 to 4 in particular, into what seems like a dead end. He tells them to encamp against the sea. He's drawing Pharaoh's army out and then pinning them in. It seems like a trap. If you're trying to flee from other people, you don't encamp up against the sea. This is a dead end. But God knows exactly what he's doing. He's drawing Pharaoh out to utterly defeat Pharaoh. God's highest goal isn't the liberation of his people from slavery, but it is showing his people and Egypt and the world who he is as he gets glory over Pharaoh. His glory, to have a sight of his glory, is more valuable than the mere liberation from oppression in Egypt. And so for us today here, brief application, God is still the God who guides us. We sing about, you never change. He still is the God who guides us. And spectacular as that pillar of fire and cloud may have seemed, and desirable as it may seem to us at times, we have far superior guidance than God's people did when they first came out of Egypt. In God's external word to us, in the gift of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us, in the fellowship of the church. And note well that following God's guidance here in 2019, almost 2020, following God's guidance doesn't mean taking the shortest and most comfortable path. When our lives are going the way we wish, that's no good evidence that God's guiding us. In fact, the best indication that God's guiding us and that we're following is that we're probably not on the most direct route and that the path isn't the one that we would have chosen in our personal preference. So number one, God guides his people unexpected paths. I would love to say something about the bones of Joseph. That's mentioned just briefly in verse 19. At the end of Joseph's life, at the end of chapter 50, because of God's promise to Abraham, Joseph says, make sure you take my bones up with you. He knows that God will come and visit his people and bring them out of Egypt. And Joseph says, don't forget my bones. Bring my bones up. Why would Joseph care about his bones? Why not just leave him in Egypt? You're dead, Joseph. He wants them to bring his bones up because he believes in resurrection. He believes God's going to put those bones back together someday with flesh. And he wants to be with his father Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and God's people. And so this is a great act of faith, as Hebrews 11 talks about, that Joseph makes provision for his bones. And we'll see it again in Joshua. I don't know how long till we preach up to Joshua, but if you go to the last chapter of Joshua, it, fill, it finishes off the, the story of Joseph's bones that they are brought into the promised land and buried with his father in Shechem. Number one, God leads his people in unexpected ways. Number two, God gets involved for his people. He gets involved for his people. And, and the text here is essentially the verses Pastor David read. This is chapter 14, verses 10 to 29. Chapter 15, verse 3 is our worship confirmation in the song, chapter verse 15. 
God doesn't just guide his people from a distance, but he gets involved. He is engaged. He's in the details with his people. God is surprisingly active in the Exodus. This is unlike the conceptions of gods in other societies. He is not just guiding. He is getting glory. He is showing strength. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. He's showing steadfast love. And now he's being a fighter for his people. This is perhaps the major point here in the chapter about who God is. He is active and engaged. He's not passive. He's not distant. And when the people are backed up against the Red Sea and they see Pharaoh's army and they begin to fear, Moses says to them in chapter 14, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. And then as Pharaoh's army approaches, chapter 14, verses, verse 19, look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, wait, hold on, <laughs> the angel of God? Who's that? Who's the angel of God? Well, we did see a mention of the angel of God back in chapter 3 when the bush was burning. God sent his messenger in this burning bush. And so here, God's angel, which I think is essentially the, the, the pillar of cloud and fire, as we saw in Exodus 3. The angel of God who was going before them, the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. God gets in the middle. He's manifesting his presence in this pillar and he moves to protect his people. He steps forward to shield them from the hostile army that's coming. He gets involved. He puts himself there in the middle. He says, in effect, I'll take this fight. I'll protect my people from their assailants. And then after God has parted the sea and the Israelites are walking across and the Egyptians come in after them, God engages further. This is verses 24 and 25. See, God's, see God here as the warrior in verses 24 and 25. In the morning watch... The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord. Now they know Yahweh. Now they know his name. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And so Moses stretches out his hand, and the waters return to their normal course. Verse 27, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, threw them. And so in, verse, so in chapter 15, verse 1, God's people celebrate that the Lord has triumphed gloriously. That's, that's a, a war word triumphed gloriously. And then chapter 15, verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. One thing not to miss here, not only is this God a warrior, not only is he a man of war, they say, but his people praise him for it. They don't cringe they're not embarrassed by his power and the demonstration of his justice. They delight 
Chapter 15, verse 20, they dance. Why? Because their God has destroyed their oppressors. God's people praise him as manifestation of the delight they have in his love that they receive from him in the very moment, in the very act of destroying those who are set against them. Which means, we saw this in chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 11, verse 7, that God makes a distinction between his people and between the enemies of his people. And that's captured in, in chapter 15, verse 19. Look at 15, 19. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Exodus 15, 13 in the song of chapter 15 is the first mention of God's love in the book of Exodus. This is it right here, love, verse 13, chapter 15. And this will not be the last mention of God's steadfast love. We'll see that in the Ten Commandments, chapter 20, verse 6, in the great moment where God passes by Moses and reveals his glory to Moses. In chapter 34, we'll see it again there. But notice in this hymn, in this song of praise, chapter 15, the people not only celebrate his love, it's really important for us because we love to talk about love in the 21st century, right? The people not only celebrate his love in the hymn of chapter 15, but also in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 15, they celebrate his fury. They celebrate his wrath. Look at verses 6 and 7, chapter 15. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. What has his right hand just done? taken out Egypt's army. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. So in the same moment, in the same action, his people are the object of his undeserved love and his enemies are the objects of his well-deserved justice and his righteous fury. In other words, God's demonstration of his wrath toward the Egyptians makes known his steadfast love to his people, the Israelites. This is how the Apostle Paul puts this in Romans 9, verses 22 to 23. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. This truth is so awe-inspiring and in such need of being handled with care that Paul does it with a rhetorical question. So the answer to his question is, answer is, yes, this is how God does it. Here's how he says it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known, mark that, he's making himself known, to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, and this is a, this is a deeper purpose, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, God shows his power toward his enemies so that his people will praise him for his love to them, which means for us as his people that our praise as our delight in him is made audible 
is bound up inextricably with his justice. God's unflinching justice to appropriately punish the wicked is not his highest goal, nor is it gratuitous. His righteous wrath toward his enemies serves the demonstration of his covenant love to his people. He doesn't love Israel if he lets Egypt carry on the course and destroy them. His love for Israel is manifest in his destruction of their enemies. So God not only guides his people, but he gets engaged, he fights, gets engaged in the details. He steps in between Israel and Egypt. He fights for his people. And that should give us a great confidence when we pray. This was a uh, very real Last night, uh, as one of my children was having trouble sleeping, having bad dreams, and asks for prayer. At that moment, do we pray to a God who gets engaged, who gets involved, who fights for his people? And with this passage fresh in my mind, there was a fresh burst of confidence to pray, God, you care in the situation. You care about these dreams. You're willing to get involved. You're willing to hear this prayer. And there was a fresh burst of confidence with which we prayed last night in that little situation. Number three, he saves his people from certain death. This is chapter 14, verse 30. There's one verse here in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 30, and then 15, verse two. Remember, God's people are goners encamped up against the sea. They're backed up against the sea. Egypt's coming, charging at them with 600 chosen chariots. And yet in this seemingly impossible situation, God makes a way. He saves his people. He rescues them from the threat. He delivers them from certain death. So chapter 14, verse 30, the end of chapter 14, says this. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. He saved them. Salvation is one of the key words here in these chapters. Look at 15, verse 2. In the song of praise, the people say, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then, perhaps in the single most important pair of verses in these chapters, he mentions salvation again. Chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. As the Egyptians are bearing down, Moses addresses the people and says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you shall never see again, and the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. This salvation here, get the context, this salvation is not fire insurance, this salvation is rescue from a burning building that's all around you. This salvation is rescue from being trapped up against the sea. We can talk about salvation so flippantly as if it's a kind of fire insurance policy. That's not what salvation is here in the context of Exodus 14. And when God saves like this, he does it in such a way that his people need not even lift a finger. In fact, they dare not. They dare not raise their swords. They dare not even raise their voice 
when he says, only be silent. Not even a war cry is called for in this situation, as he will call for that later on at Jericho. God shows us something about himself here when he saves us through the agency of obedient people, and he shows another aspect of himself when he saves his people who do not work, but only have to be silent. That reminds me of Romans 4, verse 5 in the New Testament. Here's Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is what we call justification by faith alone. In Christ, God declares sinners to be in the right with him by faith, not any of our doing. Similarly, this salvation that God works here at the Red Sea is a sea-only salvation. It's a faith-only salvation. God does not ask them to take up their swords. There will be other times for that. God does does indeed extend his grace in the world in ways that involve his people's participation. But before he calls them to take up weapons in the battle, which he will do in chapter 17, as is coming, he first, here in chapter 14, fights for them and tells them they need not take up their swords or make their war cries. So don't miss this, the the nature of this divine rescue for us as it applies to us. Uh, When you think there's no way, when you think this marriage is done, when you think even the counselor says it's done, or when you think a child or a friend you fear will always be estranged to you, and it feels like you're backed up against the Red Sea, and there seems to be no other options, no other possibilities, no way, no how, and the chariots are bearing down on you, and it only feels like a matter of time. To be a Christian in these moments is to remember the Red Sea. Remember God's people backed up against the water. Humanly speaking, it was hopeless but God made a way for his people that they could not even have asked for or imagined. Knowing God creates hope in our otherwise hopeless situations. So our God, he guides us, he gets involved, he saves from certain death, and then fourth and finally, he is to be feared and praised. This is verse 31 of chapter 14, the last verse, chapter 14. And then verses 1 to 2 of chapter 15. One of the most striking reversals in this story is how God's people move from fearing Pharaoh. This is a, it says in verse 10, they feared greatly. And then Moses says in verse 14, fear not. And then in verse 31, look where their fear is. Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So the people have seen the the display of God's power plague after plague, and now in a dramatic demonstration, they see his great 
power. Verse 31 says, at the Red Sea, they see how God's power far surpasses Egypt's. And then the people fear, not Egypt, the people fear the Lord. And this is the right kind of fear. God means for his people to feel this kind of fear. This is healthy fear. This is the kind of fear we all should have before God. In this chapter, God's people move from unrighteous fear of Pharaoh in Egypt to righteous fear of the one true God. They should indeed fear God with the fear of awe and reverence and with fearing his omnipotence and fearing what would happen if they were to run from him. They're not fearful of being face-to-face with him in faith. They're fearful of losing faith and running from him. It's the kind of fear that elicits praise. That's why the next thing recorded is that Moses and his people sang. They praised this God who made himself known to them by destroying their enemies. And so chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, whom they fear. They sang this song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. And as his people delight in him like this, this is a delight that exists with a healthy, righteous fear. This is, this is not a, a kind of fear that rules out delight. <laughs> These go together. As his people delight in him and praise him, God gets glory. Glory is no small theme here at the Red Sea. In fact, chapter 14 is the only place in the Bible where we find this particular way of putting it, where, where God says he will get glory. That way of putting it is nowhere else. That's unique to chapter 14. Look at 14.4 again. We we were there earlier. Come back to 14.4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then four times in chapter 15, God is talked about for the first time in history as glorious. Verse one, verse six, verse 11, verse 21. This is the first time this language of glorious appears to talk about God. So here at the Red Sea, God does indeed make himself known to his people and to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and eventually to the world, and he gets glory over Pharaoh as the one who is far more powerful as God guides and as he gets involved and as he saves his people and as his people respond with holy fear and hearts of praise. For more than a 1,000 years, the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea was the single greatest event in the history of the world. In no one single event 
did the God of heaven reveal more about himself than he does in the Exodus and at the Red Sea? Until Calvary. Where a new single greatest and most revealing event in the history of the world occurred. In the person and life of Jesus, God's son, culminating in the final acts of his life, in his death and resurrection, God revealed himself with a clarity and memorability that surpasses all else, which is what we remember at this table each week. Here at the table, we remember how God guides his people and how he fights for us and how he rescues and redeems us in Christ. And what is that a composite of? Someone who guides, someone who fights for and gets involved and is engaged, someone who comes to the rescue, guidance, engagement, protection, provision, rescuing. What does that lead us to call God at, to call, to look to God as? You might say father. It was almost too good to be true. The ancient Israelites weren't quite comfortable calling him father, making that last leap until God sent his own son who would welcome us and even instruct us to call him father. So as we come to the table and pastors come, we come to eat with Jesus and with his father. This is a meal for the members of City's Church. But if you're with us this morning and you call him father through Jesus, and you would say, this God who has made himself known at the Red Sea and at Calvary is my God. I praise him. We'd invite you to eat with us. We'll distribute the bread. It's gluten-free. We'll retain it and eat together. His body is a true, true bread. Let us serve you.